Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with my good friend, Benny Gifford. He is an obstacle racing athlete extraordinaire, and he's down in Texas. We've had a chance to meet. I've done some work with him, and he was genuinely agreeable to come on the show with me today and discuss the topic of overtraining. Wow, overtraining is the worst, right? Benny, say hello to everybody. Hey, what's going on, guys? Yes, Richard, it freaking sucks. (laughs) So you told me a little while ago before we got on that you had uh, an episode with overtraining yourself. You want to share your experience and let people know kind of how that went down? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I'm pretty new to uh, formal athletic uh, training or pursuit of athletic goals. Uh, Before I started doing obstacle racing two years ago, I was um well i was uh my my experience with athletic training was i was a male dancer so it was kind of just get in the gym lift heavy whatever gets me big nothing really specific just get big and uh, i started training with my coach now yancey and i was not down I, i didn't have the communication down with him like he likes and i was kind of just doing what he was programming me instead of giving him feedback and i beat the crap out of myself. I thought, you know, ah, oh, yeah, this is what champions do. They push through the pain. No, you listen to your body because if you don't, you end up doing what I did. I, I completely fried my central nervous system. I got to where I couldn't even do an extremely easy pace mile or two mile run on concrete, like not even trails without just being just brutalized. I couldn't recover. I had no energy. I couldn't sleep good. It was, it was just a mess. Yeah, it's the worst. You know, but I got to tell you, in the course of that little um, foray of conversation, you said that once upon a time you were a male dancer. And it, it, <laughs> let me tell you what happens, okay? <laughs> this is funny. This is going to be funny. I think you're going to like this. You know, we talked about getting you and Matt and some other folks out here to do some comprehensive training, right? Mm-hmm. And I have, might have mentioned to you that I have a condo that I have access to, so I could I can bed like six guys in this place and it's like a beautiful condo in a very elite country club and um, the person that owns it she's an older lady she's about uh, 71 years old and somebody I work with and have been working with for quite a long time and she agreed to make this available to me and as a birthday present one of her friends bought her one of those uh, stripper poles (laughs) and they set it up in this condo right And I said, well, you know, if I get the boys to come out and do this thing, I said, we'd probably get Benny to dance for you. Are you serious? (laughs) 
I swear to God, and I had no idea that you had a background. <laughs> well, you you hit it on the nail. I guess when you spot one, you can tell. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, know I just thought the guy doesn't like to t- wear a shirt at all, so he's down for that. I'm sure he is, right? It's it's funny you say that because I guess just to clarify, I've I've actually never been to a strip club. It's not my thing. I've always done private strippergrams. Um, I, I did, you know, the the birthday parties and the bachelorette parties. Dude, and, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I, I'm just letting you know that, it, you know, if and when I make it out there, my, my pole skills are not uh, up to par. I don't think I've uh, ever <laughs> been she, on one. She so. won't even care, man. Now she's going to be all about it. She's You'll probably get a personal invite now. Well, I'll make sure and pack my breakaway jeans. <laughs> all right, so back to the, the conversation at hand. I got a little lost there for a minute. <laughs> But let's kind of look at the whole concept of overtraining and, in essence, what it really boils down to. Because I think a lot of people are kind of lost when they're thinking in terms of overtraining and what it really means. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to fire off any alarms to cause people to get too nervous about it. But at the same token, I think it's really important that people understand, number one, the importance of developing a sound training program so that you get at the front end of it and you don't end up having to try to patch this problem. And everything that I've read and everyone I've spoke to agrees with me that you just want to make sure that you stay in front of it. And that means planning your training and staying on top of the metrics that you gather. And this comes near and dear to my heart because people are all the time talking to me about well, you know, I know my body, and I'm not really into heart rate, and I don't want to, you know, I know if my friends wear a heart rate monitor, but I don't, you know, I, I've always trained this way, and I, I, and they always give me this, you know, this, this crap about how in tune they are with their body. Hmm. But, they're, you know, you could be leading down this path, and you could be on your way to destruction and really have no sense of it until one day you wake up and everything just doesn't seem right. Right? Have you been kind of down that path? Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of, uh, uh, I guess if I get on my rant, that's one of the things that I think is really important and a really good argument for keeping good tabs on the metrics of your training and day-to-day keeping a journal, making sure that you, you pay attention to how you feel and pay attention to, I mean, make notes. I felt good today. I felt bad today. My waking heart rate was X. Any changes in homeostasis, anything that comes out of color, keeping on top of all of that is really, really important. And then the other thing is there's not like an on or off switch with overtraining. There's actually stages that you travel towards in order to get to this dark place. And in the beginning, it's with intent that you're overtraining. So realizing that there's this thing called supercompensation where you challenge your body to do more than it was capable doing the day before and through recovery you become stronger and more capable of taking on more and more work and the common term for this would be referred to as overreaching as opposed to overtrained and there's actually stages of overreaching and the first stage of overreaching would be considered functional overreaching, meaning that you've got a handle on it, basically. And then non-functional overreaching is where you've done too much and you required more rest, and it's basically have disrupted your training plans. 
So maybe you had two or three days worth of work you had planned for the balance of the week, but you couldn't throw down simply because you just didn't have it. It was not there for you. Soreness was overcoming you. Everything was just going wrong, tired, fatigued, nothing's going well, and you couldn't put it together. And you needed those couple, three days in order to, to patch the problem, and then you get back in the game. And then when you get to the place where it's actually overtraining syndrome, now you got problems. You know, you got some serious problems. And so when you talked about your experience, did you actually have it clinically diagnosed as being overtraining or did you just feel like crap for a while? No, I just felt like crap and finally asked Yancy what was going on. And he said, it just sounds like you have overtrained way too much and we need to scale things back. You need a lot more recovery. Yeah. Well, and that's pretty common in respect to a diagnosis. You get a coach or someone that looks at you and says, yeah, buddy, you know, you probably need some rest. But there's actually a pretty significant difference between overreaching and overtraining. With overtraining, it's actually considered a neuroendocrine disorder. It becomes a, a real serious problem. And uh, it affects your autonomic nervous system and your hormonal system. And basically what happens is you just mess up the entire interaction between these two uh, systems and your body actually gathers pretty much what they would refer to as jet lag. Hmm. And your body has now got a limited capacity to repair itself while you're resting. So your typical scenario where you might take a couple, three days off and you try to get back in the game and you're still not there, that's kind of pointing towards more of a problem than you thought you had, right? Yeah. And so I think it's important that people understand that this is no joke. I mean, uh, I want to be careful how I say this, but at the same time, I think I need to say it, is you get all this bravado, these guys chest pounding and, you know, talking about sucking it up and all this kind of thing. And to some degree, that's all fun. But as an athlete, you have to be very careful and you have to be very methodical with your training if you really want to be successful. No, absolutely. You don't need to sidestep that at all. I, I think that needs to be said a lot more. I, I can't stand how the most common type of mentality with anything athletic is no pain, no gain. That whole mentality of you just got to push through and pump your chest type thing and throwing up means you had a badass workout. No. Um, so I don't know if I should be swearing. but um, No, that's okay. No, I, I, I wish more people were more out outspoken about that because there's a difference between actual athletic training where you are you're listening to your body you're not just a meathead throwing weights around you know what your body is going through and what the purpose of your actual movements are it's 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 kind of similar to when people do yoga just because they've heard yoga is good for you but they don't know what the point of this position or that pose is it's like you're not really doing yoga you're just doing certain movements you see other people doing right well um in my day-to-day -day and for years i've always espoused the need to be proactive with training as opposed to reactive with training when you start to have to react to the training that you've done then you you've lost control of the process altogether and this is why again i i don't mean to keep banging the drum here, but I really think it's critical that every athlete that is going to go out there and put in the hard work keeps tabs on the way their body responds to the work. And not just day to day, but in the moment. 
And so that when you intend, we were talking a little bit earlier about aerobic conditioning as opposed to anaerobic conditioning, you want to go into that, that concept of training with intent, where the day is scheduled to be an aerobic day and you scheduled to be aerobic for, let's say, for example, 90 minutes. Just because you feel really, really good, you don't change the prescription and go three hours. <laughs> especially if the next day you had planned to do something with greater intensity because what you do today is going to have influence over what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. So, again, getting back to being proactive with your training as opposed to reactive with your training, it's really, really important. And I see this a lot. So, And, and I, I take ends with people that are doing multiple races in a weekend, and I'm sure that's probably going to be a situation this weekend as well. And I have athletes that, that are doing that, and they not without them hearing me complain about it first. And my argument has always been I, I like to win. And when I say like to win, I'm talking about my camp. If I'm training somebody, I train them to be a winner. I don't train them to be an also-ran or, wow, he's got guts. He, he, he sucked it up and managed to do all three of those races. <laughs> I want him to win, right? Yeah. And I just think that you ask too much of yourself sometimes when you try to do – a trifecta in a weekend. Uh, to me, a trifecta, and I, I'm sure Joe DeSena will hate me for saying that, something like this, it's really more a function of a marketing tool to develop dollars for the event producers than it is a smart idea. Well, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a business first and developing into a sport. You won't really find, and this is not at all uh, dissing or devaluing the trifecta to any open racers or anybody who has that as their goal, but you're not really finding anybody who's in the, I don't like the word, but the elite, the competitive category who's going for a trifecta. They're not there to just push through and see how many races they can do. They're there, like you said, uh, like Chris McCormack said, I'm here to win. Right, exactly. And so getting back to the concept of this overtraining, it's a mysterious little deal. I mean, it's not something you do in one day that has that grave influence over your body. Mm -hmm. It's a collective process. It's just if you don't have scheduled recovery times in your training, there's a very great likelihood that you can do too much <laughs> and very easily get into a situation where, you know, maybe you sucked it up and you did the workout anyway and the next day you didn't feel great, so you sucked it up and did the workout anyway again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you might have a week or even maybe 10 days where it's back-to-back -back that you're just not performing well. And your result is that you decide to push yourself harder. It's almost like whipping the horse, right, to try to get it to run. Mm -hmm. And it's just bad, bad juju. You don't want to do that to yourself. You need to respect what your body's telling you. When you are really feeling in a bad place, it's time to just be done with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I I overtrained once a long time ago, and I never wanted to do it again. And so I've always erred on the side of undertraining. And uh, I actually just restructured my training over the past few weeks because I wasn't. Uh, and, and now that I you you told me that there's actual different degrees before you actually hit overtraining. Um, but I was starting to feel. I think probably some of the beginning stages and I recognized it and I was like, nope, I'm not going to get to that final stage of overtraining. And I, I talked to my coach and I restructured some things about my training. And I, it's funny, it, it is way less, like if I was doing Monday, 
Wednesday and Friday as a real high quality day. I mean, all workouts and all sessions are quality, but real quality is in uh, uh, usually a little bit higher intensity or uh, maybe a little bit more of a workload than my less quality days. Uh, and then I would be doing uh, a, a lighter workload on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. I've switched it now to where I'm not doing any programmed sessions on Tuesdays, Thursdays, basically not my quality days. All I do is make sure that my heart rate is going for a good amount of time, my aerobic capacity is going for a good amount of time each one of those days in whatever fashion I want because I was just realizing that I was not going into these quality days 100%. And now uh, we've been doing this for about two weeks and I feel amazing. I am nailing every workout I do. I feel like a rock star. And But it's funny, it comes with a um, kind of an edge to it because you end the workout and you can tell that you've grown. Like you just feel the freaking growth in your system and you want to keep going so badly. But it's just like you said, it's it's not being reactive. It's being proactive. Like, nope, I feel good, but I need to stop because I accomplished exactly what I set out to do today. Exactly right. And uh, let me break it down a little further. There's actually two different forms of overtraining. There is the sympathetic form, and that's more commonly found in sprint-type sports. And this is going to get to interesting, I think. And then there's the parasympathetic form, which is more common in endurance sports. Mm. And, and what makes it interesting is that in sympathetic overtraining, your heart rate is elevated, is one of the, one of the responses to being overtrained. And in parasympathetic training, your heart rate is decreased, meaning you can't get your heart rate up. Huh. And so now think about this. Let's say that you had scheduled some hill repeats, which are high-intensity efforts, Mm-hmm. And you wanted to focus on that, and you may find that your heart rate's through the roof towards the end of the week relative to where it was earlier in the week. That's kind of pointing towards becoming more akin to being overtrained. And in an endurance effort, it could be the polar opposite of that. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that is. I, I hadn't thought about it. I'd, I'd heard of um, and studied the para and the sympathetic nervous system, but I, I didn't know, but in hindsight, I guess it makes sense that you would have different uh, reactions based off of whether you were in endurance or whether you were focusing more on your fast twitch muscle fibers. It's very interesting. Well, what ends up happening, if you think about it, how many times have you spoke with someone that said, you know, I couldn't get my heart rate up today for anything, or man, my yeah. heart rate was really high all day. And if you kind of track it back to the type of work they were doing, and if it was habitual, meaning they might have had two or three days of a particular brand of work under their belt, it could be leading to a very specific outcome, which is contrary markers, where if you always thought, well, my heart rate's high, I need a break, or my heart rate's, I can't get my heart rate up, what's that mean? You know, you could be completely wrong about what, it, what the culprit is behind what you're doing. Yeah. And so I thought that was kind of interesting as I was doing a little bit of research on that. No, that is an extremely valuable piece of information because I, I've kind of thought uh, I've been doing a lot of cross-training and experimenting with different stuff uh, just to, in general, be able to keep up the same amount of uh, aerobic training while lowering the amount of just beating on my body that I'm doing with running. And with that, I'm experimenting with rowing and cycling and swimming. And so my form is not exactly that great. And so I assumed that if I couldn't get my heart rate up or if it was spiking, it's just because my form was terrible. 
But that's a whole different factor I hadn't even thought uh, considered. I guess it gets back to, again, the way you assemble your work and making decisions. I don't like workouts that are canned and applied 15, 16 weeks up front. So in other words, I've had people ask me to write a program for them for a marathon. And I mean, I've done, I wrote a book. My God, I've, I've got like 16 templates in my book that are for various distances and various capacities relative to a beginner, intermediate, or advanced runner. But I hate doing it because you just don't know what's going to happen next week, right? Yeah. You, know, you don't know how your body's going to re- respond to any given scenario over the course of your training time. And so I like to really, really stay in touch with the way your body's responding day to day, week to week, and make decisions going forward. And when there's opportunity to be had, we take it. And when we need to regress with our training, we do that as well. And always consciously throwing the intent in the work that is prescribed relative to our capacities. So having given people VO2 tests and looking at what their thresholds look like, I wouldn't just look at you and say, well, if you're you know, 25 years old, I want you to run at 175 beats per minute, and we're going to call that your high aerobic threshold. And where, in fact, you might have had a threshold of 140 beats per minute, and I'm just beating the piss out of you. And I'm thinking that uh, things are going the right direction, and in fact, I'm killing you, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so the idea, again, is, and I'm kind of getting off on a tangent and a rant here, but um, being ahead of the game is really, really critical because once you get to the place where you start to wonder whether you're overtrained, you probably are. Mm-hmm. And the difference between the amount of recovery time between being non-functionally overtrained versus overtrained is a matter of months in recovery. Hmm. When you get to the place where you are actually clinically overtrained, you may require three to as many as six months worth of recovery. Holy cow. Where if you're just beat down from non-functional overreaching, you could probably be good with about two or three weeks of recovery and be back in the game. And with functional overtraining, it's a matter of just this this roller coaster of work. You know, you, you're taking the work on, you're getting the recovery necessary, you take a little bit more work on, get a little bit more recovery, and you start to progressively increase your capacities, and you're doing it proactively as opposed to reactively and finding out, whoa, I just did way too much work last week. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm seeing that again a lot. And um, the thing with me in this sport, and when I say this sport, I'm referring to obstacle racing, it's new to me, and I have got a long history of working with traditional athletes, for example, in running a marathon or doing an Ironman triathlon. These are things that we know, we've had experience with, we've learned from, and we have history with, and we know what we can get away with and what we can't. Mm-hmm. With obstacle racing, it's kind of the new guard. There's lots of crazy stuff being tossed at people, and nobody really has the book on it where they could say, well, yeah, we can't do that anymore, or that's not a good idea because we've you know, historically found that by doing that, you know, you're just you're just digging a hole for yourself. And yeah. so people are just they got this blind ambition and they're tossing up some really really crazy stuff, and it's just not paying off. No, especially with the wide variety of uh, usually when when 
if you don't hire a coach or something like that, when you're trying to get good at something, you, you look, well, if you're smart, you look at who's doing it good or the best and you try and do what they're doing. Not <laughs> a bad idea. Right? And a terrible idea in this sport because you've got a ridiculously wide range of people. So you've got people like Ryan Atkins putting in uh, like ultra marathon mileage, like 70 miles a week for obstacle racing. And yet, he turns out to be arguably the best obstacle racing athlete in the world. And then you've got somebody like Hunter McIntyre, who you work with a ton, who I don't know where his mileage is at now, but he does a lot of quality rather than quantity of, of miles a week. And it's just like, well, who do I follow? Because they both match up a lot in, in the actual results. Well, Hunter and I, we, we've come to a learning phase we spent the the last year me yelling at him to get in more mileage and him yelling back at me that he didn't need to because he <laughs> was doing something else and but this year he came to grips with the realization that to be successful he's going to have to be a little bit more as you suggested qualitative but he needed to be a little bit more quantitative as well mm-hmm. and i don't really have a number on the number of miles or volume that i want someone to run I want them to be capable of running as much as they they need to or they should. And the difference between that mindset and what is typical is, as you suggested earlier, you know, focusing on running mechanics and form. And I did, I don't know if you listened to it, but I did a show last week where we talked about the difference of abuse and overuse. And if you read anything about running-related injuries, the term they always use is overuse injuries. And the definition of overuse means you're doing something too much. The definition of abuse is you're doing something wrong. Hmm. And the distinction is important when we're talking about overtraining and such, especially injuries. And now we're talking about more orthopedic injuries as opposed to uh, neuroendocrine type injuries, where because you did too much badly, you've, you've been hurt, right? And so the volume of work should be something that you have con- complete control over. You might get tired, but you're capable of doing it without creating injury. Right. Um, so the problem with guys like Hunter is that when his volume started to come up, he started to hurt himself. And through working on running mechanics and such, we got him to a better place, and he was able to take on more work this year. And Evidence was in Temecula, he pounded the competition pretty heavily. Oh, that was crazy. Yeah, and I think that um, uh, I'm going to throw him under the bus a little bit, and I don't mean to. I love you, Hunter. I swear to God I do. But, um, you know, he just did that Camp Kokoro. Yeah. Right? And I fought him tooth and nail on that. I said, what are you doing this for? And he said, oh, you know, it's great character building and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I've done it before. I said, dude, but you gotta you gotta race Montana, and you're gonna come away from this thing. You're gonna be beat down. You're not, you know, it's not gonna go well. He said, oh no, you know, we'll have a little time, and I'll take a week off, and then we'll get back to work, and then we'll get ready, and we'll go crush Montana. Well, guess what? <laughs> no Montana, right? Yeah. And he's he was beat down. I mean, uh, to this day, he's probably still trying to amend and get himself back in shape, and I, I'm sure he'll be good come June for the. Uh, the race in Monterey, but he sacrificed a quality event because he did too, he put too much on his plate. Yeah, and do you know, uh, did he actually end up going? He just decided not to race? or did No, he, he didn't race? go. Okay. He, yeah, he didn't go. And 
he told me a week before the race that he wasn't going to go, and I fought him again. I mean, I'm saying, you yeah, know, don't don't judge where you are physically today. You got a few days, you know. Let's wait till Wednesday before we make a decision. And sure enough, come Wednesday, he was saying, you know what? I'm just not there. I don't have the snap. Uh, I feel okay, but I just don't have what I feel like I need in order to do well at this race, and I don't want to go there just to get beat up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can't argue with that, but I just thought that throwing that 60-hour Sufferfest in the middle of a good training program was probably not the best idea. <laughs> no doubt at all. And, you know, I mean, a guy's going to do what a guy's going to do, but if I was building athletes that are going to make money and end up on the podium and end up with sponsors and get in the front row, um, I'd take a heavier hand in something like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it gets right back to the whole concept of, putting too much on your plate, not keeping track of the responses day to day as to whether or not you can get away with what you're trying to do or not. And uh, it's just it's just like that. Yeah, absolutely. With, uh, with the world champion, with OCR world championships at the end of the year, now they've got, they introduced that 3K course on Friday. There's the usual seven to nine mile race. I don't I forget. Yeah. A specific distance or whatever on Saturday, and then they have the team competition on Sunday. And I have people asking me to be on their team on Sunday. Uh, of course, I want to compete on Saturday, but my focus is, you know, for the long term, is the Friday competition. And it's like, well, hell, if I'm going to go to Canada, I might as well get in all three. Well, no, I tried that craziness last year where we had the OCR Warrior Tournament, which is essentially the same thing as the 3K, just it was a little bit shorter. And I competed on Saturday, and I ended up bailing on the team competition because it's like, this is just ridiculous. Like, even if my body could make it now a year later, which I'm sure it could, I'm not going to win. I'm going to get my butt kicked because I'm burnt out from just three days of, of pushing it. Yeah. Well, I think we should talk a little bit about what we should do to keep ahead of this type of a problem. Because I think people are, might, might be listening to this going, well, okay, so what do I do now? Yeah, And um, I have some interesting thoughts. I was sent this device. It's basically a pulse oximeter, much like you would have if you went to the hospital. And what you do is you just attach this thing to your middle finger, and you rest for a little bit, and it reads your resting heart rate. But it also gives you back this really interesting number. It's called a Pluth score, or Pluth index. And what it does is it measures your hydration levels in your body. Wow. And this is something that uh, actually I should say that the person that gave it to me is Dotsie Bosch, who was a silver medalist in the Olympics in London for Team Pursuit, Women's Team Pursuit, which is a cycling event. It's a velodrome event. And all through their training, they were using this uh, pulse oximeter to identify their state of training. And if you woke up and things were a little buggy, it gave you good information in respect to what you should or should not do that day. And it also gave you a sense of your hydration status. So this is kind of a cool tool. It's a little pricey, to be honest with you. It's like 400 bucks. Um, but if you were to be really diligent with your training and pop this thing on your finger in the morning after you get out of bed, pop it on your finger after you've trained, pop it on your finger when you go to bed and start keeping track of the values that you're getting back from it, 
you can get way ahead of any potential dangers that might be looming in the distance and start making decisions about what days you're taking off, whether to take on intensity versus volume. And uh, it's a kind of interesting tool. Now, obviously enough, if you have a heart rate monitor, the same thing applies, with the only difference being that you're not going to get a chance to see uh, any insight in respect to your hydration status. But mind you, if your heart rate is typically higher and you're a little dehydrated, uh, that could be part of the problem. Um, but waking up in the morning and what your resting heart rate looks like when you start out the day is important. The heart rate responses that you see day-to-day -day relative to the work you're doing is important. So, for example, if you were out running, let's say you've identified that your aerobic pace, um, and a, let's give it a number. Let's just say that aerobic for you is 150 beats per minute. And at that aerobic pace heart rate, you typically run an eight-minute mile. And you find that commonly, day after day, you start noticing that your finish times relative to that heart rate are slowing down. Mm. That's a decreased performance relative to expense. And that's telling you something right there. Could be very well that you need to either change up the type of work you're doing or recover. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting to note what I also found was that when you're recovering from overtraining, the most important thing to do is back off the volume. So, for example, if you wanted to try to get back your fitness, you might do short bouts of higher intensity work, and you can pretty much get away with that. It sounds kind of like a jump start to uh, the long hauls that you can't do in that moment. It's just so, an interesting concept that you're, you know, you can still exercise, but where someone might think go long, low, and slow, that might be the polar opposite of what you need to be doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so for those of us uh, regular Joe Schmoes who don't uh, have the uh, the income range of having stripper poles in our condos and playing <laughs> golf clubs, and we can't afford these fancy finger finger doodads, what are what are some basic uh, everyday type things that someone would be able to use to identify the starting stages of, of overtraining or overreaching? Well, you could go old school and just palpitate your uh, radial artery and just check to see whether or not your your pulse is off. So um, Off meaning like in the morning it's it's getting higher and higher as you wake up? It's, well, it's, no, I mean if you wake up in the morning and you like if you just take, like right now I'm doing it, I'm taking my left hand and with my index finger and my second finger, I'm palpitating or touching just below the extent of my thumb, okay? So on my wrist, I'm right under my thumb. And so my palm is up and my, my fingers are pressed down on there, and I feel my pulse, right? Uh -oh. So now if you were to just, like, look at your stopwatch or your second hand on your watch and just count the pulses and get a sense of what your pulse rate is for the minute, so 60 beats per minute is pretty common for me, 55, 50, 60, something like that. That's pretty normal. If I wake up and I'm starting to see 70, 75, well, that's a little high. Something's a little amiss. Okay? Gotcha. So, hey, i got to stop you for one second and have a little mini celebration because <laughs> this is the first time in my entire life I've actually been able to feel my pulse on my wrist. Because <laughs> you, you, you said 
You said at the base of your thumb, which nobody has ever told me. I just see the movies. They just slapping two fingers on their wrist, and I'm always just like, like, like hitting myself, like, <laughs> like a cokehead or meth head or whatever here. And I'm just sticking my fingers in the middle of my wrist. But you said at the base of your thumb, and instantly I felt it, and I was like, oh, okay, I got it now. We well, go. yeah, you're right, because I mean, some people will, you know, I guess the, the details, right? If yeah. you're just kind of reaching around in your wrist and you can't seem to find anything, you might give it up, right? Yeah. But it's really pretty simple. If you just trace your thumb down to, to your wrist and then with two fingers just put, you know, subtle pressure down there, pretty quickly you should start to feel your pulse. Awesome. I just lost mine. I had it a minute ago. <laughs> but uh, that's a way to do it. I mean, you don't have to go out and get like a, you know, a blood pressure cuff or something like that or a stethoscope. I mean, that works. But um, you could just tap it out and just see kind of what your, your pulse rate's doing in the morning. That's old school. It works. I have a Mio watch, and I should probably shout out to Mio. Uh, when I put this puppy on, it gives me my heart rate, and um, no, no harm, no foul. It just easy, easily gets my heart rate for me, and and I, I'm good to go. And you know, by the way, these things. Uh, well, let me let me just say that for them. You know, they have the Mio Fuse, and the Mio Fuse I think is an interesting choice for OCR simply because. It doesn't have a watch face to get all jacked up when you're climbing through mud and things like that. Mm-hmm. It just has like a, a, a glowing LED um, that comes through the band. And so like the time of day, your heart rate or whatever will shine through the band. And so there's not, there's just the rubber band around your, ri- your, your wrist huh. and it'll pick up your pulse. And you can get it wet so, like, if you're in water, you could still see what your heart rate is, which you can't do with a chest strap, which is kind of fun. Yeah. But yeah, those are I, relatively cheap. I think you get those, like, for 150 bucks. Yeah, I don't have a Mio watch. I have um, an Adidas, the Adidas My Coach, but it uses Mio's technology. And I did, like, a bunch of freaking research before I bought one because I – at the beginning, when I was going to start diving into heart rate training, I, you know, I used to be one of those jarheads who was like, no, man, I know what my body feels like. You just tell me a pace and I'll run that. And eventually I wisened up and I was like, okay, you know, that's stupid. I should at least figure out what my, heart rate fe- what my heart rate is when I am feeling this way that I think I know what it means. Uh, so I did a lot of research and that one was showing that it was the most accurate across the board without going up into like the like upwards of $600 range uh, of watches, and it's that Mio technology, and it's it's freaking awesome. Well, Benny, if you want one of these, I could probably arrange for you to have one. No way. I would uh, definitely not say no to that. Okay. Well, would, would you prefer the uh, Alpha with the watch on it, or would you prefer the Fuse? The, um, so look, the fuse... You know what? You can tell me later. Just go online and look at look at both of them and let me know which one you prefer. Awesome. Will do. And I'll, I'll reach out and see whether they'll show a little love for you. Well, I appreciate that. Look at that, folks. It does it does you good to get on a podcast with Richard Diaz. Absolutely. You know what? My show is a show that pays. I <laughs> can tell you that over the course of the three years or so that I've been doing this, I have probably given away easily $10,000 with a swag. Easily. 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 Awesome. <laughs> and so for whatever it's worth. But anyway, um, let's give some parting comments here. Number one, and since we've been talking about heart rate, Give up all the concerns that you might have or all the buggy notions that you might think are important and just bite in. Get yourself a heart rate monitor. If you're going to train and try to be successful with your training, try to win, 
try to have better race times, having a heart rate monitor is absolutely required. If you've not been tested, there are some simple equations you can use, and you can kind of wing it, so to speak, and get into a better place. But even if you don't do anything other than to use it as a smoke detector hmm. to identify that, whoa, when I do this, my heart rate is X. When I did this yesterday, my heart rate was Y. And or, wow, I just got up in the morning, I put this thing on, my heart rate was 60. Wow, now my heart rate's 70. It's information, it's, it's feedback from your body that is critical, and you don't want to discount the importance of it. Because we're talking about overtraining right now. We're not even talking about training parameters. We're just talking about when things get out of control and how you can get a sense of whether things are heading in that direction. And I think a really simple defense mechanism would be to start monitoring your heart rate one way or the other. Absolutely. And then the other consideration is training plan. If you don't have a coach, not interested in paying for a coach, you can sit down with pen and pencil and start mapping out a reasonable approach to your races. And by the way, racing every weekend, quite honestly, is not a reasonable approach to training. No. <laughs> you know, it, it happens, I get it, and I'm dealing with it right now, and it's it's against the grain with me, but I, listen, I've got several athletes that I coach right now, and it's like every week, oh, yeah, Saturday I'm – oh, by the way, Sunday I'm – and then Sunday afternoon I'm – and I'm like, oh, damn it, when are we going to get some quality volume in this thing? We can't – I'm always, like, looking at the taper, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm always looking at towards the back end of training as opposed to the front end of the training. Man, and it's only going to get worse and worse. At the beginning of the year, I sat down and I added, like, freaking 50 races to my calendar. And then about a week later, I was like, wait, when am I going to train? That doesn't work. I'm sick of coming in uh, for – okay, so I don't like admitting this, but I have never podiumed at a Spartan race. I am always freaking fourth or fifth – well, no, okay, I podiumed as part of a, a – for the team championships. But for myself, I've always been fourth or fifth in a Spartan race, and it's really pissing me off. Um, and I just hit my, uh, my first, it was the same thing with battle frog. And I just podiumed for the first time in battle frog a few weeks ago because I like, I made a rule the most frequently that I'm going to race is once a month. I'm, and even that is pushing it because that's really only three and a half weeks of quality training. And if I'm only doing three and a half weeks, that's a week every single month that someone else who is not racing once a month has on me. And that adds up across the year. And that, that makes a big difference. That's a good practice, Benny. I'm glad to hear you say that because I think you're absolutely spot on. If you were to stick to about a one-month race and pick some key races, you know, uh, you maybe do a lesser race here and there just to test your, your mettle, so to speak. But the focus should be quality training, and then racing should be easy. Racing should always be easy. It, the, the real trial and tribulation should be in the training and the progression you know, not just do what your buddy's doing. And so many people are doing that. Hey, oh. what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. Oh, yeah, well, I'm not busy. I'll go with you, you know? No. <laughs> that, man, it's, I'm, I'm moving up to Colorado Springs uh, June 2nd, which is perfectly in time for your, uh, um, your clinic that's up there. So I'll be there for that. Yeah. But um, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to be moving in with Ryan Kent on the Spartan Pro Team. I heard um, that. Uh, Bracken is – well, actually, we live in this, we're going to be in the same uh, – 
complex. Uh, KK Stewart's there. Miguel is just a little bit north of me. I'm going to have to try real hard to not be joining everybody. And what are you doing today? What are you doing today? Because I, I have my own training program, but I'm going to be in a new place with mountains. I've never lived in a place with mountains. I'm going to be surrounded by finally an active community, not like Dallas. And <laughs> the first few months there, I think, are going to be really hard on my uh, on my will to stick to my training program. Well, what what would be the smart thing to do is get together with the boys and dial in a program that you all follow, you know, yeah. and, then, and then if it's going to be heart rate intensive, you just stick to your game. You know, if you, if you're going to run at 140 beats per minute today and so-and-so can get it done at 150, it is what it is, you know, but you're, you're, you're far better off if you stick to your guns, stick to your game plan. Don't get sucked into chasing the rabbit and then always doing what they're doing. I liken it to like, if I don't know if you've ever, we well, probably have, done an aerobic class, right? And the teacher, the aerobic instructor, is just fit as a fiddle and just happy as a lark as she's beating the hell out of these poor old ladies in the back of the class <laughs> that are beat red, dying, and they call it an aerobic class, right? Yeah. The only person in the room that's aerobic is the instructor, <laughs> right? You know, what's interesting is, I mean, I've owned health clubs, so this used to bug me all the time. And what ends up happening, uh, years and years of members going through and taking the same class day after day after day after day and never, ever getting in a better place physical. Yeah. Because they're absolutely chasing the wrong person. So, I mean, that might be a stupid analogy, but it's the same thing. Yeah. No, definitely not. And that's not a stupid uh, metaphor. That was a perfect comparison. I, I First Zumba class, only Zumba class I've ever done. My girlfriend's a Zumba instructor. And I was like, Shh, I want to smash this little Zumba class. And I got destroyed. I got like 35 minutes into it and I had to bail. I'm, I like snuck out the back and she's just smiling and talking the whole time. I'm like, what the crap? Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, granted, I had trained earlier that day, but still, uh, it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, Benny, we're going to see you in Colorado then, right? Yeah, hell yeah. Actually, my girlfriend, I'm making her come and do it because she has been um, – she's one of those fit-as-a-fiddle people, but she, she has some goals that she hasn't been able to budge on. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking it's just because she's been coming from a real uh, – our culturally traditional fitness mindset and not so much – uh, accurate to what's going on with her body. So I, I think even though she's not necessarily a runner, the things she's going to learn about how her body works and mechanics and things like that in your clinic is going to be uh, relatable across the board. Well, I have to tell you, one of the things that we're going to do this time that we didn't do the last time I met you is we're offering up resting metabolic assessments. And I don't know why I didn't do it last time, but I've been doing it. I, uh, we did this uh, when we went to Louisiana and it gives you the whole picture. So we do a test where you lie on a bench and we basically sample your respiration for 15 minutes. And it tells oh. us how many calories your body requires in a 24-hour period if you don't do a thing. Oh, nice. It'll also show us how many calories your body is consuming from fat versus sugar in that 24-hour oh. period. Oh, man, I'm freaking psyched to do so that. So you could, you could very readily see how effective your nutritional strategy is Holy and, crap. and yeah. whether there's something that you need to change. 
And then when you add that to the VO2, now you have your active metabolism, what it costs you to do the work you're doing, and what it costs you to do nothing. And you add those together with your lifestyle, and you get a really good sense of how many calories your body requires in a 24-hour period relative to the way you train. So a guy like you, for example, who is ultra lean, you may find that you're not getting near enough food. And you're, you, know, you look great, but you could be catabolic. You could be in a situation where you're actually sacrificing a little bit of lean weight in order to, to get through the day, and you're just used to it. And so this test really helps to put people on an even keel with their nutrition, and it pays back in performance. When you start noticing that your sleep is better, that you're not sacrificing muscle tone, and you're, you're not really changing your weight all that much, unless it's necessary, in which case we put them in debt. But at the end of the day, you just you feel great, and you're able to perform better. And I think it's a, a primary consideration to, to have that test done. So we're going to do that in Colorado as well. Sweet. Yeah, maybe maybe all these years of people telling me, eat a sandwich, they were, <laughs> they were being serious, eat more food. Yeah. Well, look, Benny, I appreciate you coming on. I hope that through all this little uh, – scuttlebutt we we came out with some pearls of wisdom that people will appreciate and uh, i look forward to seeing you in colorado brother yeah man hell yeah thanks for having me on i'm just like to see you there cool well friends it's time to bring another show to a close be sure and tune in to us next week we've got a lot of great content in store for you i want you to tell your friends to check us out you can always find us on facebook simply go search the natural running network drop us a message I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.